Welcome to Woody Online. Thank you for tuning in to one of our live service recordings. Our community is based in Cardiff and we meet every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. If you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you there. We hope you enjoy this week's message and that it inspires and blesses you. So yeah, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name's Stuart. I'm one of the uh, leaders here. And we're going to be starting a new series as it's a, a new year. Um, Before we got to Advent, we finished our series looking at the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to carry on into this new year looking at 2 Peter. Um, And today is just very much an introduction to some of the big themes in the book, and we're going to, in a minute, read the first two verses of 2 Peter, um, just to give uh, Jack a moment. But before we get into that, I I want to tell you a story about two guys, and we're in New York in 1967. And this first guy is a a chap called Mark Chagall. Has anyone ever heard of Mark Chagall? Sheila has, Uh, so she may be an art buff. He was born in 1887 in what's now uh, Belarus. It was part of the Russian Empire. Uh, His parents were Jewish. And he was an artist. Uh, He worked in several um, mediums. You will see stained glass windows that he made in various grand churches around the world, um, including one in Chichester. Um, And before World War I, he travelled to Berlin and Paris and St. Petersburg and developed his technique and style of modern art. And you're seeing some of his paintings on the screen Now, after World War I, he moved between Moscow and Paris. And then when World War II broke out and France became occupied, and as a a Jew, he escaped France to New York. And he's been described as the quintessential Jewish artist of the 20th century. He's considered a a a master um, as an artist. And uh, the second guy we're going to see is a chap called David Steen. Uh, That wasn't the name he was born with, but it was one of 15 names that he used through his life. Uh, He was born in Egypt in 1935, and he ended up living in France as well, uh, but also uh, found himself in New York. He was also an artist, and as part of his art education, he studied a number of masters including Matisse, that more of you might have heard of, and Marc Chagall. And as well as being an artist, he had quite a checkered past, and he found himself with multiple convictions for theft in France. Um, As well as being, uh, you know, he was obviously a talented painter, he decided that it might be more lucrative to be a forger. Now, he didn't paint exact copies of art that already existed, but because he had practiced in the style of these masters, he would paint other works and then pass them off as originals of the master. Um, One day, and this is unbelievable, but it is true, in 1967, David Steen went into a gallery in New York and he sold three paintings to the dealer who ran that gallery. Uh, He said that they were originals of Marc Chagall. And he had 
certificates of authenticity to confirm their provenance. Certificates of authenticity that he himself had made, uh, as well as the paintings that he himself had painted, and he then took them to this art, to this art dealer who, slightly embarrassingly for him, believed that they were originals of Marc Chagall. And he hung them in his gallery for sale. Now, it just so happened that that very afternoon, Marc Chagall was also in New York. And he went into that gallery and saw some paintings that he apparently painted that he had never in his life seen before. And he was able to point out that they were not the genuine article. As a result, David Steen, the guy who's on the screen, was arrested and spent time in jail in the US before he was then deported to France, where he served some more time in jail for other forgeries. There's an incredibly strange story about uh, David Steen in terms of how his life went on. He got to know the judge in the trial in the USA. Um, he then continued um, to be a painter. He actually painted then under his own name. One of the paintings that we saw scrolling through was actually a painting he painted under his own name, but was a tribute to Marc Chagall. Although it did become found out later on, much later in his life, that he also continued to paint forgeries throughout his career because potentially you could sell those for more, mo more money than the paintings he made under his own name. What's fascinating as well is that when he was on trial in the US, many art dealers that had bought works from David Steen refused to cooperate because it was embarrassing to them that they would look foolish and their expertise might be called into question. Fakes can make fools of art collectors. In other walks of life, we've, we've seen, heard in recent years about fake finance schemes, sometimes called Ponzi schemes. You might have heard of ba Bernie Madoff or Alan Stanford, who created these investment vehicles that people poured their life savings into <coughs> only to find out that they were huge frauds and lost their money. Fake financiers can make fools of honest investors. They can ruin lives. There is a cost and a consequence. And the same can happen in matters of faith. What is true can become misrepresented, or it can become subtly twisted and changed. Sometimes it can be of deliberate deceit, a bit like we've seen with David Steen. And someone might set themselves up as actually uh, teaching a, a false gospel. And they're usually easy to spot. And I'm sure you might have some people in your mind, particularly those who are seemingly coveting fame and riches for themselves. But sometimes it can be for more well-meaning reasons. It's not even deliberate. It's not even uh, understood by the person who's slightly tweaking it. But they may just actually want to make that message more palatable to the people around them. And so rather than the genuine article, they start to just make it a bit different, a bit more easy for people to accept. And they can actually change it. And like 
with the paintings of David Steen, it isn't always easy to tell. But there are consequences. The issue of fakes lies at the heart of Peter's second letter, which we're going to be studying over the coming months. Peter is warning of false teachers and false prophets, which in turn lead to false disciples. As I said, today we're just going to look at the first two verses and we're going to introduce some of the big themes. There will be much more detail to be unpacked as we move through the series. But before we get into that detail, I'm also going to set you some homework for this week. Firstly, a reminder that as we started in the last series, we will do a couple of Q&A sessions as part of Woody Cafe through this series. Uh, We have got some dates, and I can't remember when the first one is. It's probably sometime in February when you've heard uh, a few of these. So if you have questions from this series, please do jot them down and bring them to those weeks where you can ask and Josh will be around, and uh, some of the other elders will be in the room, and we will get out the commentaries, and we will grapple with any questions that you have from the series. That's the first point to remind you. But also this week, I would encourage you to read the whole of the book of 2 Peter. And you're thinking, crikey, the whole of the book of 2 Peter? Well, I can tell you that in my Bible, it is less than three pages. It almost would fit onto two, two and a bit. So that is quite achievable. Um, It's not that big a Bible either. It's upside down, but you can see. uh, There's not much over the page. If you took out the heading, you could fit it all in there. Um, I would encourage you to read it so that you actually just get the whole landscape. Just read it in one sitting, um, the whole thing, three chapters, so that as we then dip in and out, you feel like you've got some of the overview. I'd also encourage you, if um, you want to go online, to look for The Bible Project, who've done an eight-minute summary video of the book of 2 Peter, which will probably do a more concise job than I'm able to do today. But they do it with pictures and images. It's really helpful to just kind of get that big theme locked in your mind. We'll share the link on Woody Notices and in Woody Weekly this week so that you can watch it. Um, It's subtitled, um, so everybody can access that, and I'd really encourage you to do that. And the other thing that I've discovered... Um, as we've looked into this, is that there's a lot of commonality between the book uh, letter of 2 Peter and the book of Jude, which is even shorter. That would fit onto one side of my Bible. And you might want to read that as well, because you will just actually, I did this as I was prepping and found it really fascinating to read the two straight after one another. And a total of like three, four sides of your Bible, I'm sure you can achieve. So that's your homework for this week. Uh, As I said, we'll remind you in Woody Weekly to do it. So this book, 2 Peter, it's understood to have been written about 65 AD. And it's thought that it was probably sent to the same group of churches that that the letter 1 Peter was sent to. So that is the churches in Asia Minor. And if you go back to 1 Peter, verse 1, you'll see a list of the places where the letter was sent. And that's what we would now consider to be Turkey. And we understand that the the book was authored by the same uh, Peter, uh, Simon Peter, as he was called by Jesus from being a fisherman. And if you remember Peter, he had some really interesting moments during Jesus's ministry. 
He had moments of being filled with incredible faith. He was the disciple that walked on the water for a bit out to Jesus until he started to doubt. He had incredible moments of missing the point and being slow to learn. And Jesus said, are you so dull in Matthew 15 to Peter? He had moments of incredible insight. And when he did grasp who Jesus was, he was asked by Jesus who he thought he was. And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He really recognised who Jesus was. He was also uh, filled with incredible disappointment after he denied Jesus three times at that first Easter. But he was also singled out by Jesus as the rock on which he would build his church. And he was told by Jesus, he was commissioned by Jesus to feed my sheep. And he was given significant authority that went alongside that commissioning. Jesus said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's in Matthew 16. This letter is thought to be a farewell speech. In verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, he talks about the fact that he is soon going to die. And it's thought that probably he may have even been in prison when he wrote this letter. It's understood from the uh, historical evidence from uh, Roman historians at the time that Peter was put to death under the reign of Emperor Nero in around 68 AD. And Nero was particularly brutal to Christians during his reign. So we're a few years, we think, before he died. And this farewell speech is about laying down a marker that applies not just to his readers at the time, but to the whole church through time. It's thought that that's why we don't have at the beginning a description of its audience in terms of a specific place. It's sometimes called, these are called the Catholic letters. It's for the whole church across geography and across time. And it's a marker to understand the authentic gospel that we wouldn't be led astray by anyone that might twist or change or water it down, either deliberately or accidentally. And it's also a challenge to never stop growing in our knowledge and understanding and our practice so that we become spiritually mature and we are able to spot when something is not right. In particular, he was warning of a particular corruption of the gospel that at the time was encouraging an increasingly permissive and worldly interpretation. But because what they were doing is they were denying that Jesus would ever return. They were saying, well, Jesus went and we're, we're hearing he's going to come back, but he hasn't come back yet. Maybe he's never coming back. And if he's not coming back, then we don't need to fear the day of judgment and therefore, we don't need to live in any kind of expectation or in the light of that knowledge. And therefore, we have much more freedom to do whatever we want to do. And they were basically twisting what Paul had taught elsewhere in uh, that we have freedom to sin rather than freedom from sin. Something that Paul was very clear to say that that's not what he was teaching about grace, if you look in Galatians 5. And so the focus became on Jesus as a saviour. They're very happy to have Jesus as a saviour. 
I think we're all very happy to have Jesus as a saviour to wash away all the bad stuff, but not as Lord. And we've sung quite a few songs this morning, and that, that word of Jesus being Lord, we, that trips off the tongue to us. But there's some heaviness, there's some weight in that term. And there's a challenge for us, as there was a challenge for the readers in Peter's day. That twisted gospel can be very appealing, but it isn't the true gospel, and that's what Peter is wanting to set out. He wants to restore confidence and order and to ensure the readers are reminded of what is right and true, and that they're exhorted to develop the knowledge and understanding and practice that will enable them to hold fast to that. And particularly... He's laying down a marker because whilst the church might be attacked from without, as we sort of read some of in 1 Peter, it's even more dangerous if it gets corrupted from within. And maybe, as I was preparing, we just made reference to some of the stories in Matthew 15 and 16. Maybe Peter was thinking on those. Maybe that time when he was... Uh, challenged as being dull and Jesus was having to explain the parable and what he'd taught to them he spoke when he spoke to his disciples afterwards they asked him about the Pharisees being offended by the teaching and he explained if a blind man leads a blind man both will fall into a pit Peter's aware of the consequences of if someone is distorting the gospel and that's what people follow there are consequences for them he talks about the consequences for the teachers. As a, as a teacher, when you read the book of Peter, it's quite terrifying, to be honest. So let's just read verses 1 and 2. I don't know if we can get them up on the screen, uh, Jack. Um, it's not too long. Good, they're there. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Right at the outset, the start of verse 1, Peter introduces himself, who he was, his credentials. And he's setting out that he was a genuine apostle. He uses the term servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus Christ. He's recognising his role and authority given to him by Jesus. A special role. When he's talking about servant here, yes, there's a a whole thing about servant-heartedness that applies to all of that, to all of us. But he's talking about a special act of service that he was commissioned to do. And that was part of him setting out his credentials. I was given this job, that is why you need to listen. I was given this job by Jesus. And he talks about being an apostle of Jesus Christ. And there are some different meanings for the term apostle. The first is a messenger commissioned to a task by a particular person. And the ultimate Uh, apostle was Jesus who was given a task by Father God to come and bring a message to us on earth. So there's this messenger commissioned uh, with something. In a more general sense there are those that are recognised by the church 
and sent to spread the gospel, missionaries and evangelists. And in that sense, there are apostles today. But there's a third meaning in the New Testament, which is reserved for a much smaller group. They were commissioned directly by Jesus as his representatives. And it wasn't a term used for all of the disciples that followed his ministry. It wasn't a term that was used for all of the disciples that encountered the risen Jesus. In the Old Testament, we have a very select few who were given very, very specific commissions. And their sentness, that's not really a word, but I'll use it for today, uh, stands out. Moses, Isaiah, Gideon, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And the New Testament apostles are seen as very similar to that in having a very direct commission, first-hand encounter with God. And it's their unique authority that lay the foundations on which the church is built. And it's in Scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And this is, therefore, another second high claim that Peter is making right at the outset. He's basically making himself equivalent to an Old Testament prophet. And in this letter, he then refers back to the Old Testament prophets as well. So right at the beginning, he's setting out his credentials. I was given a task by Jesus directly, and that is who I am. That is why you should listen. So in the face of potential calls to replace or to change or to supplement or to edit bits out of the gospel, Peter uses this letter to call people back to the original from his first-hand experience, from what he has learnt directly from Jesus. He knows the original, a bit like Mark Chagall was able to go into that uh, gallery and say, that's not mine. He knew what was right What was the genuine article? What was the original? Peter is saying, I know what the genuine article is, and I'm going to set it out so that you too might know what that is. And he's saying that this came from Jesus. It's not my own intellect. It's not my own personality. But it's solely the authority of the one who sent me that gives this credence. So we have an eyewitness account. And then he, as I said, he refers to the Old Testament prophets. And he's saying this aligns to what we know from Scripture. Those prophets who were commissioned directly from God, they said what would happen and that was fulfilled in Jesus. So we have that plus I have seen his ministry and I have been commissioned. And so he's setting out here that 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 message can't get changed over time. But he's set out firsthand as a plumb line against which it can always be tested. So that's the the first part of verse 1. And then he talks about genuine Christians. And whilst, as I said, we understand this letter probably in the first instance went to the same places as 1 Peter, it's also universally applicable. Peter had been there at the events of Jesus' ministry. He'd seen them firsthand. But those who aren't there can often think, well, maybe it wasn't 
just like that, or it wasn't as significant as it was for those who were there and right there and then. That, could be, that was the same then in Peter's time. It can be the same for us. And for many in our society, they think, well, whatever happened 2,000 years ago can't really be that important, can it? Well, if it was not that important, why are so many people still following today? Peter succinctly summarizes here some of the key attributes of what it is to be a genuine Christian, and we'll see more as we go through. But first of all, he says, you have received a faith. Peter's actually acknowledging a sort of complexity or a bit of a paradox here. Sometimes uh, you might hear people say that I've been chosen. We talk about chosenness. And then other people will say, well, I believe, I've got a faith. And there's this kind of, well, how does all of this work? Peter deals with both. We have a faith that we have received. And we looked at this when we were going through the Ephesians series uh, about a year ago. If you want to get into that in any more depth, you can go back uh, on our YouTube channel. If you look at the Ephesians episode 3, confusingly called episode 3 when it's chapter 2, but that's just all fun and games, uh, we unpacked the whole thing about chosenness and how we have a faith, but that faith is given to us. So that's a key thing uh, that we will look at uh, again in a moment. And then as precious as ours... And that ours is a key word here. The faith that Peter's readers have is the same as he has, the same as the first Christians, the same as the apostles. There's no difference in the faith between uh, the apostles and the non-apostles. There's no difference in the faith between the Jew and the Gentile. There's no difference in the faith between the first century and the 21st century. It's the same faith in the same Jesus. And he says, through the righteousness of our God and Saviour. He has made sure it is the same through all time, through his upright and it, uprightness, and it's not through ourselves. It's not because of anything we've done, but it's because of the righteousness of our God and Saviour. Just in this first introduction, he set out some of the key factors. Then, so he's talked about being a genuine apostle. He set out some of the terms of being a genuine Christian. Then he talks about genuine knowledge in verse 2. First of all, verse 2 starts with this, uh, what appears to us a fairly standard greeting, grace and peace. That's normal for us. We often see it at the beginning of uh, the letters, the epistles in the New Testament. But it was actually a combination of two greetings. Grace was uh, kind of, or charis is the Greek word, was commonly used uh, as a greeting. Uh, but then the peace, uh, it was, we, if you listen to the um, Advent uh, preach that I did, it was talking about peace. And the uh, Hebrew word is shalom and the Greek word is irene. Um, that uh, was a Hebrew term, uh, the, the idea of peace, and he's combined the Greek and the Hebrew uh, greetings. And it's reinforcing the inclusion of the gospel to Jew and Gentile. And he's also referring to the generous heart of God in grace, in giving us what we don't deserve. And he's talking about in peace the wholeness and the restoration 
that the gospel brings, all delivered through the work of Jesus. And then he talks about through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And what he says here about the abundance uh, of uh, knowledge of God, at the very end of the book, he comes back to it. Uh, in the ver- final verse, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Growing in the knowledge, the abundance of knowledge and understanding is this big theme that Peter is going on about. And he talks, he uses two different words for knowledge as we go through the book of 2 Peter. Uh, Two different Greek words, you may have heard them before. One is gnosis, it's spelt G-N-O-S-I-S. That's about knowledge of the truth, about knowing something. And it's knowledge that you can gain, I guess, by kind of studying. You can know about something. Maybe you can acquire your knowledge through uh, books or uh, Wikipedia or reading things online or whatever it might be. But there's that sort of knowledge that you can gain. He's not saying there's no value in that, but he also talks about epinosis. And that's the deep knowledge of the Lord. And it's been described by some commentators as knowledge that is given. Or it's a bit like actually knowing someone. Maybe uh, like your spouse or your best friend, you don't just know about them. You don't just know how tall they are and what colour their hair is or what colour their eyes are. You actually know the person. And so he talks about both these types of knowledge. And he talks, you know, someone could know a lot about Christianity. There are plenty of people that know a lot about Christianity without knowing God. Bruce Collins talked about knowing in your knower. You know, there's something inside you where you actually know. You can recognise truth. And Peter's saying we need to grow in our knowledge in both senses of that. That needs to be abundant because that is how we can test what is true. And there was an incident in the last 10 years at Woody Incident sounds slightly more dramatic. There was an uh, occasion where actually there was someone teaching in Woody and they taught something that maybe was a slightly unusual interpretation. And I'm pleased to say that actually a number of people in church were then coming and said, ah, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. It was delightful as a group of elders to think, firstly, someone's listened, but also someone has understood and is then willing to act on it. And, you know, that that was able to be dealt with. But that's exactly what this is about. If you don't have any knowledge and understanding, how can you test whether what you're being told is right or wrong? Perhaps Peter is also then thinking back to his commissioning in Matthew 16, when Jesus highlighted that um, his understanding, Peter's understanding that he was the Christ, the Messiah, was, he said, Jesus says, that was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by your Father in heaven. He's also got that idea of knowledge that is given as well as knowledge that is received. So that's another big theme in this book. And then in these few verses, Peter points out 
Who is the genuine Christ? Jesus is mentioned three times in these two verses. And he's mentioned with different names. We talked a bit about uh, the name of Jesus in one of those songs earlier. Jesus Christ, our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and Jesus our Lord. And he picks up there four attributes of Jesus. And we can, I think, bandy some of these terms around quite casually without fully thinking what they mean. They've become quite normalised to us who spend time in church and with Christians and reading the Bible and talking about it. We sing those things. But have we really grasped it? And do we grasp it and live like it on a day-to-day basis? First of all, Jesus is the Saviour. He's our Saviour. What's he saving us from? He saves us from our past sins. He's then saving us from the current corruption in the world. And then he's going to save us on the day of judgment, past, present and future. We are saved, we are being saved and we will be saved. And it's that latter point, as I mentioned earlier, that Peter is really focusing on in this letter that a day of judgment is coming when Christ will return and the only safe place will be behind the cross of Christ. Or as Paul writes in Colossians, when we're hidden with Christ. We need, uh, I think we understand that Jesus is our saviour. And hopefully in this church, we do know that Jesus is coming back. We spent that whole time through Advent when we look forward to Christmas, when we remember Jesus coming the first time, but we look forward to him returning again. But Jesus is our saviour. The second one, Jesus is God. Peter is acknowledging the divinity of Jesus. He is our God and Saviour. He's not just our Saviour. He's confirming the full divinity of Jesus. He's spelling out, he's not just a gifted teacher. He uses the term God twice in this uh, passage differently because Peter understands and has grasped, this is before the theology of the Trinity was like well unpacked and uh, set out. But Peter is like setting out a primitive form of that. He talks about um, Jesus is God, but not all of God. He talks about our God and Saviour. And then he talks about the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he sees that Jesus is God, God and Saviour, but then there is also God and Jesus. And that's part of our understanding that we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That is what makes up all of God, but Jesus is part of that, and Jesus is God. So he's setting out right at the outset that we understand that relationship. Then he talks about Jesus being the Christ. The word Christ uh, or Messiah or the Messiah, the definite article. That's the word for anointed one, liberator, redeemer, our high priest. We, we hear the term Jesus Christ used all the time, often by those who do not know him at all. But at the time, that was an incredibly radical thing. 
for Peter to write. The Jewish nation had been, and are still, many of them, believe they're waiting for the Messiah to return. And Peter is saying, this is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for, and he is here. That is who he is. He is your liberator, your redeemer, your high priest. And then he sets out that Jesus is our Lord. For the Jewish reader who knew their Old Testament, the word Lord and Yahweh kind of go through the Old Testament. They would immediately jump to that. They would understand all those references to the Lord through the Old Testament. That is who Jesus is. But as a Lord, he has the right to our obedience. At the time uh, that this was written, the titles of Saviour, Lord and God were often used as titles for the Emperor in Rome. So there was also a contemporary interpretation where these titles, he's saying, Jesus stands against these claims that the Emperor is making. And to anyone who was not a Christian, it would have sounded ridiculous. This carpenter from Nazareth, who was a poor, wandering teacher, who was then beaten and killed, is now the Saviour, Lord and God. But as we know, God has turned foolishness to many into wisdom and weakness into glory. And Peter is highlighting that with these four terms, we can't just separate them. We can't just accept Jesus as saviour, but not obey him as Lord. They go together. When we see people come through here to be baptised, we say, do you accept and acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and saviour? They come as a twin set. And that lordship of Jesus is going to be a theme that we see through this letter as he stands against false teachers. That they might want to dilute that element. They might move away from the idea that Jesus is coming back. We don't really need to treat him as Lord. We don't need to be worried about being found in Jesus on that final day. But at the outset... Peter is setting out his stall that we can't just have Jesus as saviour and then do as we please. Neither is it just some kind of theoretical knowledge, but this is about word and deed. It's about recognising we have been redeemed and bought with a price and that we are now his. And that means that we are required to live differently, to live in the light of what has happened and what is to come. And that is what marks us out as genuine as well. So to wrap up, over the coming weeks we will get into some of the detail of the letter, but I wanted to just introduce some of the big themes that we're going to see. In particular, this encouragement to grow in our knowledge of God and to grasp the authentic gospel, to know it for ourselves, not to outsource it to someone else. Don't outsource it to us as elders, because what if we get something wrong? Who is holding us to account? Don't just 
outsource it to uh, random people on the internet or on Spotify that you might listen to? How do you know if what you're listening to is right? We need to take some responsibility that we might not be led astray and that we might be saved on that final day. So what do we take away as application? Well, I've already given you some homework. Go away, read 2 Peter this week. Maybe read Jude as well. Watch the Bible Project video. That's the first thing you can do. Second thing, as I was preparing, I think there's two two things I would encourage you to do. We're at the start of 2024. We're still in the first week just of January. I know uh, you might have already set some resolutions, but I find this time of year a kind of time of sort of resetting, asking the big existential questions about what am I going to do with my life over the next year and all that kind of stuff. Do we need to re-recognise or recognise for the first time the lordship of Jesus over our lives? Is now a good time to spend a few minutes now, but maybe through this week, to commit to say, I'm going to grapple with that. And ask yourself, are you taking decisions in your life in line with his will? Is that the first thing you think about when you're taking decisions in the way that you spend your money, the way that you spend your time, who you spend your time with, what you let shape your thinking? Are you living lives that are recognisable as having Jesus as Lord? So that's the first thing, and we will undoubtedly come back to these themes over the coming weeks. And the second thing, it's also an opportunity to commit ourselves to growing in knowledge and understanding of Jesus. Perhaps another challenge for this week is to work out what that looks like for you this year. Is it signing up for the Bible in a year? And you don't have to start it on the 1st of January. If you start on the 7th or 8th, it's fine. If you look up the Bible in a year app, you can set the start date to whenever you want. You might miss a day. Don't beat yourself up about it. It's a marathon, not a sprint. If you do it in the Bible in a year and two days, if you do the Bible in a year and a half, you've still read the Bible. If you do the Bible in three years, some days it might seem like too much. You can read it, you can listen to it. There's different ways you can consume it. Or maybe you want to start doing, as um, Annabelle mentioned, the, the version Bible app just has a verse of the day and you can get someone just talk to you for a few minutes. Uh, and it will give you some extra reading. You can basically do it in a minute or 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever. There's plenty of tools, but maybe that's something that right at the start of this year you want to say, I'm going to develop my knowledge and understanding this year. That's going to be the thing that I'm going to really try to do. Trying to carve out time every day to read the Bible and to pray. Or maybe what you want to need to do is to join a life group or a prayer triplet or find a mentor so that you can be more accountable. <coughs> so there's some things to take away. We're going to go through the rest of this book over the coming weeks. But yeah, as we go into communion in a minute, I'll pray and then hand back to Annabelle.
How are you going to recognise the Lordship of Jesus in your life this year, today, this week, this month? And how are you going to develop your knowledge and understanding of Jesus this year? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those first apostles who have set out for us a record of who you are, of what you've done, and the significance of that for us. Would you help us to grow in our understanding and our knowledge of who you are? Our knowledge that we can gain through studying, but that knowledge inside ourselves, in our hearts, in our guts, that we would know you. Lord Jesus, just now, we ask you, would you give us a true and deep knowledge of you? And Lord, would we recognise you as Lord of our lives? We thank you that where we have fallen short, we can come back to you. We can confess. You invite us to turn away, to repent of where we've gone wrong, and to then step back onto that narrow path and walk with you. Where we need to do that, as we come to communion now, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to work among us, to show us ways that we can recognise and live in that understanding that you are our Lord, that you would show us areas where we need to be more obedient, where we need to be more conscious of who you are and your will. And I just pray as we go through this book over the coming weeks and months, would we have ears that are open and eyes that are open to hear what it is and see what you're showing us that we might grow in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to Woody Online. We hope this week's message has inspired and blessed you. If you're ever in Cardiff, we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services at 10.30 a.m. Don't forget to check the show notes below for our contact details. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to tune in again next week for more inspiring content. We look forward to connecting with you soon.